Welcome to our BNS on Aerospace and Defense podcast series. I'm Pat Hindle, Media Director for Microwave Journal and Signal Integrity Journal. I'm joined by our hosts, Brian Goldstein, President Analog Devices Federal and Vice President Aerospace and Defense Group at Analog Devices, and also Sean Darcy, Senior Director at Infineon. Welcome, guys. Thank you, Pat. Uh, good to see you, Pat. So we have uh, two special guests today. We have uh, Bob Broughton, Director of Design Engineering, Aerospace and Defense at Analog Devices, and Lucas Hansen, Vice President and General Manager at Keysight Technologies. Welcome, Bob and Lucas. Thank yeah, you. Good to be here, Pat. Thanks. So I will uh, hand it over to Sean. I think hey, we're talking phased arrays today, huh? We sure are. Thanks, Pat. So welcome, Bob and Lucas, once again. Um, I guess can we just start out real quick, just uh, tell us a little bit about what you guys are working on, a little bit about yourself for a couple seconds, and we'll jump to some questions. Sure. So my team has been developing phased array for military and space applications, uh, airborne applications, and we've been we've been at this for a few years, and um, I think we've got some great technology. And recently, we've uh, formed a relationship with Keysight uh, around the area of calibration and, and measuring these phase array uh, the antennas, not just ICs, but the antennas themselves. So I'll hand it over to Lucas, and he can fill in more. Yes. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Yeah, and my team uh, works on you know the measurement systems for calibration, design characterization, and validation, right? And uh, you know we. We have taken uh, work that we've been doing for a number of years in the wireless 5G communication space going back to 2015 and 16, and we're applying that to the phased arrays for new applications like aerospace defense and others. So it's exciting to uh, to be partnering with uh, the ADI team on this and also to the broader ecosystem as uh, phased arrays are becoming a much, much bigger part of uh, all of our communication systems. Can I take the opportunity to tell, you know, a good phased array joke to break the ice a little bit? You know, I think uh, it's called the, the BS session. You guys, you guys heard the one about the two antennas that, that fell in love, right? They eventually got married. The wedding ceremony was, wasn't much, but the reception was excellent. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, thanks for your first and last visit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, we are going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about some aces and phased arrays here, and we won't we won't tell any more uh, jokes at least for the next five or ten minutes until Brian gets a little. Uh, but hey, let's talk out. Uh, I'd like to get you guys uh, you know some initial thoughts, and we'll dig a little bit deeper here. So you know, one of the things is that we hear a lot about the analog hybrid digital arrays. Um, maybe Bob, you start. Tell us a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of each. Right, so analog beamformers, their, their superpower is high quality beams, but relatively low beam count, but low power. So you can you can generate maybe you know, 10, 15, 20 beams out of a system, but you, you take a single channel beamformer that can generate one beam, and you have to replicate that whole system and combine at the antenna element. So for the number of beams you have, that's the number of beamforming networks you have to build up. So there's a practical limit to the to the high side of the number of beams. Hybrid beam forming, instead of having just one feed point for each of the beams, you break the array into subarrays, and now you've got um, the ability to generate thousands of beams out of that same antenna. You have more converters, but the power per beam is lower. But the problem with the hybrid beam forming is if you're, you're looking at wide scanning angle, there's, there's beam quality issues that you have to manage. So, uh, for geo, where you have a very small field of regard, that's a very popular uh, architecture. 
But for Leo, not so much because the beam quality isn't so great. Digital beam forming gives you the best of both worlds. You can get high number of beams and very high beam quality, but the power consumption goes up. And so on satellite applications, that can be a challenge. And the, the designs that are, that are going on right now is to manage that power. You know, clearly digital beam forming is the ultimate Shangri-La. That's where everyone in the, in, the, in the research community and the visionaries want to go, you know, one beam, one converter, ultimate flexibility. And what are, what are some of the real technical limitations? What is it, what's stopping that? today you said power but what specifically yeah so so the the power for a converter if you need a lot of dynamic range on a converter that's driving power if you need uh, a lot of bandwidth on the converter that's driving power so those two dimensions figure right into the power consumption now multiply that by the number of elements that you have and you've got a big number so instead of having for an analog beam for maybe a few hundred watts less than a thousand watts for an antenna it could be a lot higher than that with digital being forming with all the DSP and the converters and even the data transport is a real power driver. The JESD to get all this torrent of data off of the aperture onto uh, the digital receiver uh, takes a lot of power at hundreds of gigabits per, per second. Right, so, so, so does that mean that in digital beam forming, the FPGA or the processor behind the converter draws a lot more power than analog beam forming as well. That's right. And because it's behind every single element, now you, the multipliers are just huge. Yeah. So the way to manage it is you have to, uh, you have to manage the complexity. You have to knock some features off of the table to reduce the power consumption. That makes the application space a little bit more narrow. It's more of a, a optimized solution instead of a general solution. I totally agree. I mean, the, the challenge has always been not just getting to the FPGA, getting the data on either a gigabat plane or something else becomes a yeah, huge driver of not just power, and we'll talk about it later, probably thermal. So, uh, Lucas, over to you. I'd like to, you know, you talked about coming out of 5G. What other applications do you see for, for phased array or ESAs that maybe our listeners wouldn't be aware of? Yeah, I think the, you touched on the, uh, the satellite uh, topic, so maybe I'll double-click on that. Uh, we see the convergence coming as 5G looks forward to 6G, elements of satellite are going to become native uh, from the beginning. So you're going to see that uh, whereas now the 5G, the 3GPP, is releasing standards versions that have uh, accounting for uh, satellite communications uh, in the release 17, 18, and 19, looking forward with 6G, the satellite communications are going to be there from the beginning. So for phased arrays, we're seeing this evolution of small phased arrays that exist on a handset in mass volume to these phased arrays that are going to exist on many other form factors to support both terrestrial communications and non-terrestrial communications. And the requirements on the phased arrays are going to you know, it, it expand as these different use cases play out. So whether that's in an automobile or whether that's on a on a wearable, on a uh, device on your wrist, you know, I think phased arrays are going to have a, a continued expansion because of all the advantages. You know, Bob spoke to those, but the ability to point the beam, to maximize the out, pow, output power, to maximize your receiver gain, to compensate for movement of those LEO satellites as they're, as they're moving above on, uh, your head. I think it's uh, it's really exciting. And, and the, the wireless comms 
space and the and the defense use cases are are starting to blur and become a lot more uh, similar. And uh, and and right at the center of all of those on both ends of that link is a phased array. So it's pretty cool. I got a, I got a quick follow up to that. You know, I, I think that we've seen so far that five G millimeter wave hasn't really taken off in volume uh, yet. How, how do you see that moving forward? And thinking about the future, is there a difference in when 6G comes in terms of uh, phased array in 6G? And how about even satellite to direct phone communication? Where do you see that uh, relative to 5G and 6G? Yeah, yeah, great questions here. Uh, you know, I think that the key here is that uh, FR2, the millimeter wave uh, for 5G, is I believe still going to uh, have a renaissance in the coming years because it's it's hard as we know and there are going to be new elements to the standard that's going to continue to improve the performance of your millimeter wave. I'm going to mark it 15 minutes into the podcast. I'm going to talk about AI just briefly, but uh, we're talking about the performance of the beams to beam search to find the devices. You know, will be enhanced through uh, CSI and other elements that are supplemented by AI. So. Um, FR2, I believe, is really going to uh, hit its stride and going into 6G, going to play a big role. And uh, as far as the um, the phased arrays, you know, they need to also evolve and, and improve the performance so that we can handle those link budgets from the satellite down to the device. But the physics is there. I'm 100% convinced that, uh, and it's working today uh, in live networks, uh, the ability for a satellite to communicate to a handset uh, and and that's going to even get smaller to things like wearables, uh, IoT devices. They're gonna they're gonna mark all those connected cows in the ecosystem, and we're gonna be talking to cows from satellite. You know, all of these things. The physics is there, and I think it's incumbent on the types of people on this call and and our on our whole ecosystem to uh, to bring it to reality and scale it commercially. But uh, I'm uh, we are absolutely convinced that this is uh, uh, the way forward and uh, again phase arrays are in the middle of it to solve these challenges just one last follow up do you see sat direct satellite to handset being in competition to 6g perhaps or is uh, no yeah it's it, it's part of it it's going to be it's going to be native so so i think that the evolution as i see it playing forward is you're going to see these um, satellite communications come online in the 5g advanced phases okay ahead of 6g and they're going to they're going to supplement the capability. So your your handset is going to um, pick the right network, right? It might be a terrestrial network, it might be a a, a satellite network. So, uh, but it, you're going to have that connectivity where these networks um, are going to continue to evolve to uh, be smarter and to to manage the devices and the types of devices more intelligently. So, um, it, depending on the customer use case, the the right network, whether it's terrestrial or non-terrestrial are going to take over. And uh, and that's all going to continue to become native as we go forward in 6G. And and it won't be a discussion of, you know, a terrestrial versus a Leo versus a Geo. It'll be one network and uh, and our devices will will manage that in, in, uh, smartly. Good stuff. No, excellent. So, hey, let's, let's switch away from space for a bit. Let me ask another question here. So you think about MILCOM, radar, electronic warfare, you know, is the day going to come when you can have a common ESA, kind of like you were describing, that can serve all three of those markets? You know, coming from the defense world, that's something we've been looking at for years. So, Bob, I'll let you weigh in first. And, Lucas, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so 
you think about the different applications, radar, EW, comms, you need to expand the bandwidth, the instantaneous bandwidth that you can serve in order to serve those those uh, three three areas. But the the um, the resolution, the uh, the dynamic range for radar, how you generate RF power for radar with pulse systems versus CW, which is more of a comms and EW uh, paradigm, that that's always going to involve some trade-offs. So I think you'll find uh, some multifunction apertures, but there's always going to be specialized niche, the super, the Ferraris of of these uh, these three different uh, pillars. I think that those aren't going to go away. I would agree. Lucas, what do you think? You know, I I think again I, I mentioned earlier that these these use cases are going to start to blur, right? You know, there's there's a term uh, that we're using over on the wireless side a lot about you know joint sensing and communication, uh, where you know elements of what has always existed in in the defense side are coming to commercial comms, and on the flip side, commercial comms and COTS um, types of designs are that maybe started in the commercial space are coming over to uh, to the defense side, so. Uh, I think the the time of maybe just doing one-off designs and specialized um, equipment, I think is will still be there for the high-end Cadillac, as Bob was saying. But I think much more broadly speaking, um, being more cost-conscious to uh, to drive in, uh, a a commercial offering that makes sense is going to be there on both sides of of the aisle, and uh, and these these use cases are going to blur. So. Uh, when we do our planning and when I'm thinking about this, I'm definitely not just the the wireless guy in my business. You know, I'm def I'm engaged with leaders, you know, like analog devices on the on the defense side and, and looking to apply, you know, my development resources to to address both markets. So so, so speaking about um, you know, your customer base in, in the you know, in the history of phased array in the defense field. The products were were historically dominated and developed by the prime contractors, the the big guys, um, and it was really specialized. And the testing was very specialized. Can you can you talk a, a little bit about the the different kind of customers that you've been seeing over the last few years compared to the past, and how the and how the test how the test uh, capabilities have changed over the last few years? Absolutely. And bear with me, guys. One more slight uh, side story. Um, I, when I started with Keysight, there was an old timer that used to work at Lockheed Martin, and he worked in these giant antenna ranges, and they'd have the satellite in the antenna range, and he would keep a popped bag of popcorn hidden underneath the satellite. And But when he was walking around, when the new guys were in, he'd wear an unpopped bag of popcorn on his hip. And he would, and the new guys would always come in the fresh out college because he says, "Why do you have popcorn on your hip?" He goes, "Hey, this is my canary in the coal mine. When that popcorn goes off, you got to get out of here because something's going to happen." And the power is turned on, and when the new guy's not looking, he'd go around the corner of the satellite, he'd pick up that pre-popped bag of popcorn, and he'd put it on his hip, and the new guys would go yelling and screaming out of the room because they think the power's on. You know, it, it, my, you're getting better. Am I one for two? Okay. But true story. No, it, it, illustrating these, <laughs> these, uh, these, these measurement systems um, have been around for a long time at the primes, as, as you said, Brian, and they're evolving. And concepts of the uh, compact antenna test range started with these prime customers. And compact meant it was the size of a of a room, right? It was big, but it was still huge. Um, it was compact, but relatively speaking, still large. And 
what we did in, in 2016 for the early millimeter wave days of, of 5G is we said, how do we evolve that measurement technique, which has been around for, for, for 20, 30 years, and apply it to commercial comms? And we shrunk this down into a one meter by half a meter um, range. So we have a CATR, a compact range that has evolved and, and, and shrunk in size. And, and we, we showcased that at, at the Mobile World Congress. And it was, I called it the barbecue because the top would lift up like you're sitting at your, your barbecue and on the weekends grilling your, your steaks. Well, instead you had your, your millimeter wave device and antenna system in there. And that, those concepts have moved forward. So uh, compact antenna test range measurement solutions took traction on the wireless comms. And uh, as those frequencies overlap, and those phased array sizes, you know, start to overlap um, with our defense customers. We've seen great traction on the on the CATR. So uh, you're really talking about uh, making measurement systems that are small, uh, accurate, uh, and and are cost efficient, so that uh, you can scale uh, these these solutions uh, to the whole ecosystem. And uh, those are the types of engagements we've seen. So, so Bob, as a as a designer and a user of this equipment. How have you seen things change? You know, Lucas is a seller, and he's always selling. How are you as How are you as a buyer of this equipment, and what have you seen? Well, over-the-air testing is is famously difficult. You know, how do you calibrate these things? It's um, there's some amount of calculation, there's some measurement. You need standards somehow that that relate to the over-the-air aspect of it. But with phase array, there's other impairments that come in with. Um, Signal quality versus beam angle, uh, for instance, that it's difficult for, for us to, to invent these measurements by ourselves. So that's where Keysight comes in. They're developing all this metrology and inventing these measurement techniques, how to calibrate these arrays in an in a economical way to do it quickly. So a lot of our customers are, uh, they're parabolic dish people. Phase array is, is new to them too. So for us to be able to bring them up through that journey much quicker, that we bring a lot of value to the ecosystem. And with partnering with Keysight, that's really important that we do this together. And that, and that gets into my question back to Lucas, of that the, custom, the customers and the folks that are building phased arrays have really changed over the last five years. And it's because of the work that you've been doing on the semiconductor side to build beam former ICs and the latest high-speed converters, we're able to take this phased array technologies to the commercial masses, and so they don't have—they don't necessarily have the historical expertise that the, the primes have, and so they're relying on Keysight and analog devices and others to educate them uh, along the way. Yeah, and, and building on that, the measurement solution in the past was seen as as a discrete component. Okay, you've got a a chamber, okay, I go to my chamber person, and now you've got a network analyzer, and I go to my network analyzer company, and now I've got my antenna, I go to my antenna company. Um, and the paradigm shift is those three things cannot exist separately. The The optimized solution to solve these challenges of calibration, over-the-air measurements, speed and cost, all require a, a, a very tight level of integration. And so at Keysight, we brought the measurement system together, uh, you know, whether it's the chamber, the positioner, the calibration, the, the, the equipment, plus working with uh, analog devices on the phased array so that there are hooks between the phased array and the uh, measurement system to optimize the performance. And with any one of those things um, not being kind of 
tightly integrated across that ecosystem, you're, you're not gonna see the performance, whether the performance is measured by speed, whether it's measured by dBs and hertz, or whether it's measured by cost, it's suboptimal. And so I'd, I'd say we optimize across the ecosystem uh, together to make the ultimate end user that's going to integrate this into a, whether it's a handset, a satellite, uh, some sort of um, plane, you know, all the, those end user customers, you know, then are that final component of the integration. So if, if you look at the evolution of phase array, the components that built up the array in the 50s and 60s were ferrite phase shifters. They were waveguide switches. These are components. This is why the primes were doing this. This is big iron stuff, right? This isn't stuff that semiconductor companies are doing. But now with, with advanced uh, CMOS in particular, now we can, we can uh, create those functions at a micro level. And happening, happening at a micro level, we have to test these things, not at the component level, which we did with the ferrite phase shifters, we have to test it as a system. So that's why we put these things together in, in uh, arrays and test them in these chambers, because one chip by itself doesn't tell you how the array is going to work. You need to build it into an array to actually evaluate it. So kind of on that, you know, you're talking about testing the array, what's, what's the differences and challenges when you go from you know, a four by four, 16 by 16, up to these extreme high element count arrays that we might use in a military program. What's what's the challenges and differences in testing that, designing it, et cetera? Yeah, so calibration is what, uh, yes. that, that's really the issue, and I'll hand that over to Lucas. <laughs> it's all on the calibration. All right, no, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, when you look at the, the, the calibration, it starts, um, you know, the system performance starts with concepts like the quality of the quiet zone, right? Uh, um, how is this over-the-air measurement getting to the device under test? And, you know, the accuracy of that quiet zone in terms of phase and ripple is going to um, impact uh, your the quality of your calibration of your device. And you know, this plays out in concepts like, okay, what is my main lobe power? Where are my side lobes? They got to go somewhere. And, you know, uh, Brian, you can speak to, you know, the impact on your customers of, of, of how side lobes are important. But from a measurement system, you know, we measure the quality of the, of the calibration that we can work closely with the, uh, our phased array partners on getting that extra dB of power out of those side lobes and into the main lobe and and providing that power and that that performance back to the customers. So uh, Lucas, I'm gonna bounce one back to you. You talked earlier about AI. I'd like to see from your side, you know, how are you using that as far as testing, calibration, um, you know, doing some more real world type testing on arrays. What are you seeing there? Sure, sure. You know, it, you know, and the, the obligatory statement is obviously AI is gonna disrupt everything we're, we're doing. Uh, and you know, the key here is that uh, AI is going to enhance, you know, what we're doing and make, you know, our our systems, our, ourselves much more productive and efficient. So, you know, plays of efficiency. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not the, uh, the person that's saying AI is going to take over. Uh, I think it's going to supplement what we're doing and make it all better. And whether that's measurement speed, measurement accuracy, um, whether it's uh, refining the types of test cases that we do to optimize around specific use cases. What we're seeing um, is that our customers are saying, "Hey, you know, we have uh, many more use cases than we wanna that we want to test that maybe we necessarily can't test because of of the throughput and the capacity of what we're doing." And so, you know, what Keysight's looking at is is how do we optimize those flows so that uh, we can use concepts of AI to take the data and extrapolate it and and apply a more intelligent test plans. 
uh, more rapid test uh, results and and optimize the the workflow of a of, from a design to characterization and back again uh, using concepts of AI. Uh, and I think the next uh, you know it, there's been a lot of hype and we're going to go through that AI hype cycle, but um, clearly the next number of years uh, are going to uh, really be disruptive on on all our markets and AI in test and measurement is something that uh, we're going to be leading the way on. So I'd like to throw it over to you too, Bob. You know, how do you, how does that, what, he, what Lucas is doing, how does that impact what you're doing? So from, from where I sit, I'm a, I'm a RF pipe yep. at this point, and I'm yep. looking for opportunities for, especially with, with calibration, yep. uh, diagnosis uh, of the health of the array. Um, but I'm, I'm learning too on the AI front. No, it's early in my journey. I'm retire before we get there. I'm just, I'm, I'm cashing out. <laughs> So, Lucas, you, you know, PSAID is in, a, is in a unique position having the test equipment, but also the modeling and simulation equipment. And so how do you how do you think about the advancement in the analysis and modeling tools and how they feed into the measurement tools, specifically around phased array? You know, and how do you think about, you know, what what is what is the detail of analysis that can be done today? And what's still in the future that still requires it to be really measured because the simulations accuracy still aren't there? You have any examples? Yeah, and I think building on the AI, but uh, also on this idea of the efficiency of your of your simulations, and uh, ultimately um, how that correlates to your live measurements. That's the holy grail that that our companies and all and our companies and our peers in our industry have been chasing for decades, right? And uh, I think you're, you're putting your finger on an important point here, Brian. The other element is, is that we can snap the chalk line today and say, well, what can you do better to simulate today? But that assumes that the devices are going to stop at these maybe 64 element arrays, 128. Oh my goodness, they're getting bigger. 6G is already talking about 1,000 element arrays, 3,000 element arrays. I mean, the device under test is only going to continue to get more complex as we optimize for the power consumption that, that Bob was talking about, the performance, all these things. So our simulations need to continue to get more complex and better, and our measurement systems need to continue to evolve. And I think what you're going to see, uh, despite that that you know hockey stick of increasing complexity that's still coming at us, you're going to see a better closed loop in the system. As you take a measurement, you feed that back into your simulations, you iterate and you repeat and that comes from kind of an, uh, a stitched together end-to-end workflow. So for those of you keeping track at home, I probably said workflow five times so far. That's number six. But, you know, that, that's really the way we look at it is, is how do you stitch together from your device design to your, your R&D to your characterization to your production and taking those measurements and then looping those back into your upstream design is a not only a technical challenge, but it's an organizational challenge, right? Some companies don't think about that. Their R&D flows aren't set up for that. So we are uh, on that journey together. And um, it's something that we're going to accelerate as, as new tools come online in the topics of AI and others, as we mentioned. So that, that's a, a good point. You know, I uh, just want to remind everybody that every time Lucas says workflow, we'll all take a shot. So, okay. <laughs> so, Bob, as, as a practical user of Keysight's uh, software and other people's analysis software, what are your expectations now of the accuracy and the things that just have to really be tested to prove out because 
because some of the parameters just aren't there. What are some of those parameters that maybe today can't be modeled as well as you want the future? What are your expectations that way? Sure. So, um, you know, finite arrays, it's difficult to just simulate these in the EM environment. You have to have both the amplifiers represented, the, the size of the array, and things around the array too, right? So uh, we're, we're trying to do beam visualization, trying to understand the quality of the beams that we're producing before we get through the whole design process, you know, to de-risk our developments. But it's not just us. We're seeing requirements from uh, the, the government in particular for model-based systems engineering. So they want models that are highly accurate so that they can look at interactions between multiple apertures and, and structures on an aircraft, for instance, right? So they want to fail fast. They want to see the problems up front and rather than having to build it and then and then uh, try again when they find the failures at the hardware level. And, and that's something that Keysight's also doing is this MBSE methodology. Yeah, Bob, let me let me build on your point, Bob. Uh, when we also look at this and we think about the, the simulation and the measurements as three layers. We have the physical layer, we have the protocol layer, and then we have the application layer, okay? And when you kind of think of it that way, what we're finding is that simulation model, uh, you know, sometimes an RF guy, I get stuck in the, well, I want to optimize my EVM. Does my EVM align with, you know, my simulations to my measurements? Uh, but what we find is that it, it uh, we're looking increasingly for that whole system level simulation. And uh, in particular, if I'm going to deploy, say, a LEO network of satellites, how big does my phased array on the satellite and on the handset need to be? to you know to achieve the system performance how many beams do i need how many devices per beam can i handle and if i misdesign my satellite phased array am i going to overpay or underpay or not be able to meet the the performance requirements so the types of simulations that that we and measurements and simulations that we're seeing is take that physical layer level apply a, a real phased array simulation and measurement to a system level simulation and do it again to say, you know, can my Leo network um, support this and how does it improve as I evolve and improve my my own real phased array design? So I think that's another key element of how phased arrays can can um, be simulated at a network level to to take the protocol, whether that's a proprietary protocol or, or a 3GPP, 5G, and all the way up to an application level um, for, for the various wireless and, and aerospace applications. So you bring up something interesting in model-based engineering, which I think, Pat, we could almost devote an entire show to. And definitely, <laughs> I'm you know, taking that, note of that. But that is something that, yeah, the government's requesting, the primes are requesting, and that's starting to flow down to other parts of industry as well. Let's switch uh, uh, gears a little bit here and talk to something that, uh, as you guys know, I have a very strong interest in, which is antenna unpacking. And I want to start with Bob here about your experience. You know, what are some of the challenges, the needs, when are we going to get there? When does it become practical? What part of the spectrum can we use it for? People have been bouncing this around for 10 years, and there's a lot of interest in it. doesn't seem like it's got there yet. Yeah, so there, there's a lot of advantages to uh, intended yeah. package. So the feed losses, uh, yeah. you can manage a lot better. Um, but the, the layers that you have to incorporate into a package now are much more specialized than you would have in just typical plastic packaging. Yep. So there, there's a trade-off there. But when you embed all these components in one package, now you've got a thermal problem as well. So you have the PA yeah. in the same package. Now you have to figure out how you're going to get rid of it. And, 
at higher frequencies, having you know, no bond wires and you know even incorporating the, the antenna into the die itself. So we have prototypes for all these things. Uh, it's it's a matter of, of um, you know solving the thermal problems and, and getting the costs right, getting the material sets right. So it's just a matter of time. It's, it's yeah. going to happen. I'd agree. Thermal's been the biggest challenge. More than anything else, get the heat out of the blood yeah. thing has been. But ultimately, with your assembly restrictions and being in microstrip or strip line, there's limitations on the performance of the individual patch that you're going to be able to attain as well. How do you, is it good enough, you think, or are there applications where it just won't be good enough? It's, it's going to be a mix, right, on the radiation efficiency that you can get in that particular material set, what the radome is going to look like. You probably still need a radome. Uh, so it's it's going to be more niche than what you can get if you can parse out the different functions and have the optimum material set for that particular function. But I think in, in for economy, certainly, if you can have, if you can build a, a scalable array that's made out of ICs that are butt up one against another, that's a great solution right, from a cost point of view. So what do you see applications that would adopt that first, do you think? Well, so we have, we see very large arrays that are evolving for, um, let's say, synthetic aperture radar that are, that are going to need very large arrays and the packaging is important. They're going to be huge, so the, the packaging has to be efficient. Uh, it has to be low mass, so you're not going to have all these different material sets that, that you're going to be yes. married together. So so that's that's one system. I think 5G is uh, is going to get there as well because of the economics. So Lucas, over to you. Uh, if you're familiar with antenna on package, it brings a whole different set of testing requirements. What's your thoughts on that? It, it's not, to me, to me, it's very different than your standard phase array with the patch antenna. Yeah, maybe just speaking to the, the thermal part of the testing, right? You know, uh, what we see is, is requests for thermal testing. Uh, one, can I test just to keep the thing from overheating, right? So give me a system that I can control the thermal of the system to just to keep it at an operating temperature. Because we all know as the, the thermal effects, you know, impact the design, you know, you start to see nonlinearities and performance degradation, right? So just uh, in the in the early stages and the research stages, you know, just keep my, my device from overheating. And then as that progresses, now I want to test thermally over a range of, of temperatures to see how this is going to work, uh, whether that's automotive or satellite, right, that starts to push those thermal ranges to the limits. Um, what Keysight's looking at and, and, and have been doing uh, in 5G is, is creating, uh, combining these uh, CATR measurement systems with thermal measurement systems where we have a thermal dome around the system, around the measurement. And you know that's like your radome concept, right? Applied to a uh, a measurement system. So RF transparent to uh, to maintain uh, phase and amplitude flatness. Um, you know, try to minimize any beam squint or or uh, performance degradations. And uh, but give the the ultimate flexibility um, of of achieving or maintaining uh, you know thermal performance of the system. Uh, that's that's definitely a, a space that you know we're here to enable, and and we've been working a lot with customers, and and we see actually uh, interest in the operators as they're as they're looking to see the performance of their system. So I think that applies directly to the challenges you were mentioning about the thermal challenges of the antenna and package. I guess to both of you, a kind of follow up question on that one is. When the antenna is actually on the package, you know, either an exposed package, or you're going to have to do some type of protection. Kind of goes to that is think about all the environmentals, especially thermal. 
can these type of arrays e easily self-calibrate? And then how do you actually have them so they adjust to the environments they're in, right? It's not just space. You know, think about being on an airframe with, with various type of temperatures and flow and vibration. Is that something we can see happen or is that go more towards Bob's example of a Ferrari? Yeah, so the beauty of IC design, especially silicon and CMOS, is that you have a lot of digital power co-located with the RF. So in the old days, we called it digitally assisted analog, right? Yes. You measure an impairment, you correct for the impairment, and you've got enough processing power locally that you can do it economically at the at the edge. Right. So I think there there is a lot of scope for us to, and we, we already are compensating for a lot of these temperature effects, voltage aging. Uh, in, in our ICs. And you've even carried it as far as putting an IMU, inertial measurement unit, on the antenna as well to start to compensate for the vibration. That's right. As well, right. How far have you gotten with self-calibration? So we, we've not done a lot of self-calibration in the aerospace defense side. On the 5G side, they, they are working on IP for self-calibration. So embedding uh, a way to uh, measure the array, but also look at signal quality for like DPD and that, that sort of thing. So those technologies are available within ADI. On the ADEF side, we've not seen a lot of call for that right now because it's done at a higher level. I, I had a, a question. Go, going back to the, the Shangri-La of digital beamforming, you know, you gave a lot of reasons why it's wanted. You gave a, rock, a lot of re reasons why it's really hard and why it really hasn't been happening. But how do we get there? There's a lot of money being spent on this problem. And what are what are the ways that we see that you see us us getting there ultimately? What has to what has to happen? Right. So for the analog beamformers, they're they're much more uh, applicable across a lot of different applications. From a block diagram point of view, it's it's pretty simple, and the the solution is very common from across multiple functions of, of these yes. antennas, right? The, the ICs look identical, whether they're comms, radar, or EW. The individual specs may be different in the different at the system level. But when you get to digital, now in order to uh, achieve a particular power consumption, you know, which speaks to how big the, the arrays are, the solar arrays are, the mass of the satellite, LEO, they're gonna have to be small, light, uh, relatively low cost compared to a geo satellite. So now we have to optimize for that particular application and application. And the trouble that, that we see right now is that there's enough of these and the, the market is fragmented enough. You can't have 10 highly optimized ICs to serve these different markets. So we're, we're looking for how much uh, SAM can we put together to develop one IC that can serve that whole pocket of SAM. And then we can branch out and, and uh, do these other more diverse. And, so, and what about the, on the processing side? Do you see ASICs needing to be developed? How do you keep the flexibility of an FPGA yet get to the power levels that need to be gotten to? Right, so one of the advantages of digital beam forming that I didn't talk about earlier, for a multi-beam system with analog beam forming and hybrid beam forming, these are not 2D arrays. It's not just a circuit board that you can lay these ICs on it develop multiple beams. It turned out to be volumes. It's a 3D, it's a box that you have to mount someplace on the airframe. But with digital beam forming, if you do it right, you can, you can create a planar array, and then you've got a lot more um, advantages for where you can mount this thing. And, and so for the, you can still go 3D arrays uh, if you 
can't give up any of the, the generality that you get with a, an analog beam forming. But now it turns into 3D arrays again, and you've got power consumption to worry about. I think the, the ASICs are going to be essential because the FPGAs just draw way too much power uh, when you're talking very large arrays. So we're going to have to go the, the way of ASICs. But I think for the, the SATCOM and the, the non-terrestrial networks that Lucas was talking about before, we really want those to be planar arrays, and we're going to have to embed the DSP in the beamforming IC itself. This is a really exciting topic. It's so rich in content. So, Lucas, in terms of the test solutions, do you see one solution for military versus, say, 5G? Do you see the test stands and test capabilities and test times required and cost of test? Do you see them being the same problem, same solution, or do you see it in different ways depending on the application? Yeah, it, it, ten years ago it was they were separate, but I, I think that convergence is well on track and in progress. And you know, the idea of maybe just building off of Bob's point on energy consumption is is a big deal. And each use case is different, right? The energy consumption on a plane or a satellite might be a little different than a base station or a handset. But measuring that energy consumption uh, in the context of real um, phased array use cases uh, is, is, is universal, right? And, and so we see continual investment uh, by uh, large, uh, both primes and, and wireless companies to say, okay, what's the performance of my array? Now, let me take it through real applications and real use cases. And one of those is power consumption use case and energy consumption. How can I be more efficient with my energy usage? How can I apply new energy saving algorithms that go beyond just the phase array, of course, it's the DSP, it's the FPGAs, it's the application on how they play out. And how can I have a more green system that, that operates more efficiently? And I think that's a that's a universal goal that we see um, both you know governments and private sector moving towards. It's where I see maybe an extrapolation of what we're talking about here into further test scenarios that uh, that are not I'll say unique as they used to be. Do you see a lab characterization test stand being different than a production test stand? Yeah, I think that's still different and. Uh, again, when when you're launching, you know, three geos and you've got a decade to do it, you know, maybe they're not the different, right? But when you're when you're trying to launch, you know, four thousand leos and uh, and you got to pump these things out, you know, uh, your manufacturing process looks a little bit more like your your handset manufacturing than it does your geo manufacturing. Now we're still talking orders of magnitude different, but you the elements of volume manufacturing even at four thousand need to be considered. Uh, and uh, in the workflow, take a drink, uh, between what happens with characterization and production. Uh, and, and again, I think the, we keep talking about satellite because it's a great illustration. The, the traditional geo production model versus what we see um, a lot of the, the disruptors doing with the Leo market you know, uh, is integrating these these different types of test stands. And it's not only the measurement techniques, uh, but it's also picking the right tests and how do you show that correlation back to um, to, to characterization in R&D? So you talked about Lucas and, and Bob as well about a lot of space applications. How do you integrate your phased array with your environmental testing? So we're talking LET, KRAD, TID, you know, how do you measure graceful degradation of the system over time? especially in phase drags, that's pretty challenging. 
Lucas, you want to take it first or you want me to go? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I mentioned the um, the thermal testing is is a great example of that. And this idea of, um, you know, how do I um, take thermal testing and apply it in scale uh, to phased arrays that are much, much larger is a challenge that that we're working with. So as you get to some, maybe some of the lower frequencies in satellite communications, the SNL band, your, these phased arrays that that uh, are being talked about are, are enormous. I mean, look at the satellite that AST Space Mobile launched, right? This S-band satellite's 15 meters or something across. So new measurement techniques to achieve these accelerated life or thermal testing are needed where you're testing at the sub-panel or maybe the, the panel array and then and then eventually to the whole array. But... Um, you know, take it's it's impractical to take a 15 meter phased array and say now I'm going to test this over you know temperature. So uh, it's a it's there is a lot of innovation that that's really exciting around how do I take maybe smaller uh, panels and uh, and sub panel testing and how do I apply it uh, more broadly speaking and um, and I think the frequencies are going to range and we're going to see a mix of these different frequencies and in this future maybe the sub terahertz starts starts to come in. But just focusing on what we see today, um, I think uh, having ways to uh, expand uh, your your thermal testing and, and accelerated life testing across these different form factors uh, is, is going to be innovation you see in the market. Bob, any other thoughts? Yeah, so at a component level, we're still bound by you know what the market's requiring from us in terms of higher reliability testing and radiation testing. You know, it's the underwriters that are driving its requirements and where it's not totally in our hands. But when, when we take that data and then through the, the model-based engineering, I think there's a role to be played there for the, the MBSC that we can look at what the degradation on the aperture looks like uh, as a function of aging and radiation exposure and so forth. The, the great thing about phased rays is, you know, what's best attributes is graceful degradation. No, it's, and I appreciate the answer because you know there's a lot of there was a lot of promise about you know phased array you can lose parts of the element you lose parts of the subarray, and that was good. But now people are starting to say if you have disgraceful degradation, how much value is that? Um, I think we're uh, we're just about at our at our time. I see yeah. Pat Pat giving us the uh, giving us the ha the hook. Yeah, but um, I did want to first of all thank you uh, both very much, Bob and, and Lucas. This has been I think this has been one of our our most interesting, um, our most interesting session, mostly because it's been the least. No, Sean, and, said, I, Sean said, and I talk because you said workflow. Floor, <laughs> Brian, Brian can't drive home. No now, one's so. driving home today. So <laughs> happy to help. I, I do want to just hit one last topic because because you mentioned it, Lucas. Lucas, you talked a little bit about the the the, uh, the relationship between keysight analog devices and. Um, there was a there was a release months back, and could you just talk a little bit about what's in that what's in that relationship and the goal of that relationship? Absolutely, you know, and and thank you, Brian, for your for your close partnership because what we have agreed to, uh, and I'm going to use your words here, but when we can work together to shift left and test earlier and better and more innovative, it will accelerate our common customers in our common go-to-market, right? And being able to test earlier and, and find new innovative ways to apply a more integrated test solution that, that makes these measurements that we talked about 
faster, cheaper, lighter, better. And then bringing that jointly to our ecosystem of customers is a way to, to, to co-innovate together and to, um, to disrupt the, the market. So uh, I think that's something that uh, from the Keysight side, we really appreciated is, is the, the ability to you know, bring our engineers together, spitball ideas, think about you know, how could we do this differently, better, and in that earlier part of the workflow, one more shot for you, Brian, uh, is the time and the place to do that. Because uh, if we're talking at the end, if we're talking at production, it's too late, right? And uh, I think partnering closer and earlier is, is critical to success. And just lastly, Bob, from your perspective, how do you see this partnership helping the customer base? Well, like I said before, you know, the customer base, a lot of it is uh, parabolic dish folks, right? So there's a lot of education. The, the, the uh, metrology is very new to them, how to control these arrays. So, and, and the calibration is absolutely key. Every single customer is number one on their list. So the idea is that ADI and Keysight are bringing customers into the laboratory with real life examples and showing them, giving them examples of how to turn these things on, how to use them, how to write the software, and then ultimately how to test and calibrate. And so it's, it's a very hands-on experience that we're trying to create together. That's right. All right. Yeah, one Brian, one more pitch there too. I think that the key also is the expertise that both companies brings, right? We're bringing the, the 5G legacy experience. You know, you're bringing your 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 wealth and years of the at the IC and phased array level. Um, and I think that's the complimentary uh, one two punch for our customers also where we can optimize both. So I I missed that talking point. So I'll say one last workflow to to finish us up, but uh, thank you again. <laughs> <laughs> Workflow it is. Well, Brian is on his way to detox right now. But uh, Bob and Lucas, thanks for uh, coming on. Yeah, thanks. Really for appreciate us. it. Great information. You could probably talk about this for another couple hours, but I think we'll close now and hand it back to Pat. Okay. Well, I thank everybody for participating today. Uh, Lucas, Bob, Sean, and Brian. And to our listeners, if you have any topics you'd like us to cover, you can email me at phindle at mwjournal.com and we'll try to fit those topics in. Thanks, everybody, for listening and look for another episode in about a month from now.